Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, this is Harmony. I'm here to say hello and to let you know that the doors are opening for B-School this week on July 20th. And if you weren't aware yet, I am hosting a eight-week mastermind along with a retreat and a workshop specifically for people who join B-School and want to work with me on developing their business idea, whether it's teaching yoga or coaching or maybe some other business idea that you have. Um, B-School is a wonderful program for big-hearted creatives who you know, find it difficult to connect with people online but want to develop a business. They have something that they would love to share. And it really demystifies the business building process. You know, it helps to give you the key things that you need to know to start and grow your business or to take your business to the next level. So I took B-School a couple of years ago and I loved it and I'm just so honored to be able to share this program with you and to also help you develop and grow through the program in my mastermind. It's not a secret formula, it's not a silver bullet, it's not going to uh, do the work for you, but it's going to help you get really focused around the specific work you need to do using time-tested principles that will really help you to increase sales and to connect more deeply to your students or to your clients and build a sustainable business that will not only just take care of you, but also the people you love. So if you have a service or a product that you believe in, you know, I feel it's your responsibility to get in front of those people that you're meant to serve and to do so in an authentic way, in a way that feels good for you, that feels comfortable, uh, that doesn't feel fake or phony. And B-School is a great program that will help you to do that. And so if you're committed to creating or running an effective yoga school, or maybe you just are in your yoga teacher training program and you're wondering how you can start teaching classes and how you can connect with students more authentically and start to build your own uh, program, whether it's online or in person. Or maybe you took a coaching course and now you want to connect with clients and help people with their health or their wellness or their life, whatever your specialty is, don't wait. This is the program for you and I would love to walk with you every step of the way to help answer those questions, to help uh, overcome some of those obstacles and stumbling blocks that you know can get us stuck when we're starting to focus on something new, you know, troubleshoot some of those areas that you're having difficulty seeing. And that's really where the value of coaching comes in, whether it's for your life or for your health or for your business. Um, this coaching will make you 500% more effective in succeeding because you have someone there to hold you accountable and to also come to with questions or to help shift your mindset when you're doubting yourself or lacking confidence. So I cannot um, express enough how much I would love for you to sign up 
to B-School through me and join my mastermind so we can work together in an intimate way, a small group of uh, heart-centered wellness professionals all working on our business together and helping to support each other along the way. Um, It's going to be a wonderful summer program and all of my attention and focus is going to those who are in this program with me. And so head on over to my website, harmonyslater.com. You can find all the details right there on my homepage. And I really look forward to working with you this summer and working together to develop and create a business, an offering that you truly love and that serves you and serves hundreds of students, hundreds of clients, hundreds of people who need your voice, who need your experience and need you to step up and step out into the world and share what you have to offer. And speaking about heart-centered creatives who are um, incredible individuals, this amazing woman is a mentor, is an inspiration, is truly a guide for my heart and my spirit. I love her deeply. She is a soul sister, a friend, um, and someone I, I look up to as a guide. This is Dina Kingsburg, and what a treat to spend this time with her and just soak in her energy, her voice, her teachings. I know that you're going to absolutely adore uh, the next couple hours with Dina Kingsburg. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Harmony, and I'm here with Russell Cave. Harmony, did you know that um, people could make comments on your website about the podcast? Yes, I did know that. You did? Well, we had a comment on one of our podcasts. I'm really excited. Really? What's the comment? So the comment is we had a a fellow, um, I think he's from uh, Munich. Munich? Germany? Is that Germany? That's a real place. It's Okay. Well, he, he wrote this. Uh, der Arschclown ist ganz lustig. Oh, okay, yeah. See. Der Arschclown ist ganz lustig. That's what he. That's what he wrote. And that's I, about you, I'm assuming. I I don't know exactly what it means, but um, I was just going to translate it, and um, I think it says the ass clown is quite funny. Well, he's bang on. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, really, it strikes me like that's where that's why the British say arse. It comes from the German, the Arsch Clown. Possibly. Yeah, right? Well, we have a very special guest today. Oh, are we recording? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And as you are well aware, this is someone who is near and dear to my heart. I know she is. And uh, a mother... A mystic, an advanced Ashtanga yoga practitioner. A devoted practitioner of Ashtanga yoga. It says here for over 30 years, uh, one of Sri Kipatabi Joyce's most advanced students. It's true. Having completed the fourth series, certified to teach. Uh, she is a stonemason, a poet, a death walker, and a lover of life. I'm cribbing that from Adam Keane, of course, but I don't think I could improve <laughs> on it. What's a What's a death walker? Hi, Dina. How are you? Dina Kingsburg, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Harmony. Hello, Russell. Hello. How we are you We love you both? so much. <laughs> We're so happy you. you're here. <laughs> Bless you. Where, so, where are you now? 
Uh, I am physically in yeah. mm-hmm. in Goonagiri, which is where Jack and I and Isaac reside, uh, which is just in the hinterland, in inland from uh, Byron Bay, east mm. coast of Australia. Is is that where you and I met, Dina? We went to yes, visit her there. Yes, we visited you in your home there, right? Yes, you did. We were having this conversation before we got on the line with you. We're wondering if you have koala bears there. Oh, yeah. Do you have koala bears? We do. We have ko- koala bears actually at at home, um, not, sometimes even in the house. But wow. Most, yeah, occasionally we've had one or two come into the house. But oh, that's a it, good day. it's seasonal. You don't see them, like, continuously. But right. we are part of a, a wildlife corridor, and we mm-hmm. have – koala-friendly trees, like eucalypts, gum trees. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but koalas aren't friendly, are they? Um, they're, they're, they're not the cuddly, stereotypical image. <laughs> it's not like you want to take one out of a tree and cuddle it. They do have no. sharp claws, and um, they're not aggressive, but they'd be frightened. Uh, You're right. So they might, like, try to swipe at you or something um, because or they were just, like, scared. Yeah, Yes, or just like cling to you with their, you know, with their sharp claws, or or try right. to get away, try more, try to get away from you, scurry away mm-hmm. from you. Um, so mostly, but if you're calm and quiet, they um, they'll just stay quite close. But they're they're more wow. comfortable, obviously, up a tree. But they have to come yeah. down to go from tree to tree. So you do see them. That yeah. makes a nice metaphor for the podcast today, doesn't it? What it does? Yeah, <laughs> they are quiet and up a tree. Or... Well, if you just we stay nice, just to... stay nice and calm, and no yes. one will get clawed. Even though everyone would prefer to be up the tree. Yeah. <laughs> I totally know how those koalas feel, Russell. Yes. I prefer to be quiet and up the tree <laughs> than out here exposed. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, bless you. Well. We were talking about the first time that we met, Mm. you and I, and well, the first time I think that we really met, like had a real good connection and met in person was at Purple Valley in 2000 and I guess it was 2008. I remember that that well, Hamani. Yes, yes. That was like our first real true meeting, but I did meet you before that. In Where 2000, were we? we were in Mysore, actually, uh-huh. and um, Jeff and I were living in um, this little house, and you and Jack and Zach and Zoli, who were very young at the time, I think um, Zach might have been maybe two. Yes. It uh, was 2000 and it was for Guruji's 90th birthday, uh-huh. so 2005, I guess. Uh-huh. Um, you guys were living in the upstairs apartment in this little old house that was um, just sort of down from the shallow a little bit. And I was, you were like so legendary and so big in my mind that I was very, very shy because I'm also very shy. <laughs> it's, and, it's a nice idea that you had to have a podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
and 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 Jack was of course because Jack's so friendly and like he you is know, he's, he's good at that stuff Oh my gosh, yeah. And so, you know, he was very talkative with Jeff and Jeff's very outgoing and friendly too that way. And so they were always having like all these chats back and forth and um, and then you're quite shy and I'm quite shy and, and I was just kind of gazing from afar. And I think we did say hello one day when you were getting in a rickshaw, but it was it was all very intimidating for me. So <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry about that, Harmony, but I probably... <laughs> I probably had my hands pretty full with two young children yes. in in Mysore, and, and you um, were also killing it doing advanced series in the shala. You did like third and fourth series one morning, back to back, and you were Are like you only sure? in mind. Yes, it's true. It's a real thing that happened. <laughs> I kind of had this feeling that that post children that didn't happen too often. So I'm um, I'm glad we're now putting it on the record that mummers, there is life after after children. There as is, far as your practice. Yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. Well, I I mean, even for for me, I um, before I had Jediah, I only was doing ad- or intermediate and maybe a third of advance. But then afterwards, I got through all of advance. Like when we f- met in Purple Valley, I wasn't even doing half of advanced A. Huh. And then got pregnant and somehow recovered. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Physically, somehow that happens. It's huge, isn't it? It's just, yeah. it's hard to imagine how... Um, how having a child affects affects your your body uh, how oh. how enormous that is in on mm-hmm. every level and i'm i'm wondering cuz i did i have met quite a few mothers since then and and over the period and there's there's something that strengthens in a woman post mm. having a child that that enables i guess the practice to return and to even deepen yeah i totally agree i i felt like that was definitely my experience, I felt stronger. I even was more flexible, hmm. um, but not right away. <laughs> exactly, not right away. You've got to give it time, it, ladies. Are you listening? Yeah, got to it took give it like time. three years for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I wanted to to ask you actually, because um, I understand the the house that you you live in that you built that house with your ha- bare hands. Maybe you wore gloves. Sometimes I was wearing gloves. Absolutely, (laughs) Russell. You hit the nail on the head there. Um, Yes. Uh, I I purchased this share in a multiple occupancy. A multiple occupancy, for those who don't know, is a piece of land that can home more than one building. But you own Mm -hmm. the land collectively. And so it Uh. it was extremely affordable. The thing is that... um, 30 odd years ago, might have been about 35 years ago that I bought it. Um, it was really in the middle of nowhere. And um, so I had this dream to to create my own dwelling. And I did a rock wall building course and simply began. It's a volcanic uh, area. We live in the the um, edge of Mount Warning, which was once a volcano. And so the ground was littered with stone. 
and the stones were free. So it was a great, it was a really amazing. Great, yeah, it was a great place to start. My my schooling was in fine art, but I majored in three dimensional so s- sculpture, right. which gave me a bit of a knowledge of how how to work with materials. And so it was yeah. really just an extension of that. It certainly mm. wasn't initially going to be the building that you saw when you came here, because mm-hmm. a, a few years into the project, I met Jack with his tool bag. (laughs) (laughs) You started on the house before you met Jack. Yeah. Yes. Oh. You're like the ultimate hippie Amazon woman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it had its roots in something. I, I I was in a relationship with a wonderful man for six years and, um, and we had both visited this piece of land together. And every time we'd come, he would give these reasons why it was just a really crazy idea to think mm-hmm. about, you know, being there because it was it it was really it was just a big bit of unkept, unloved jungle, really, mm-hmm. which was largely camphor laurel trees and lantana for those people who know that they're considered weeds, and yeah. so. Right. Um, and there was no, not even really a clearing, so you had to use your imagination, and um, I had, I had plenty of that. Anyway, <laughs> one time oh. when we were driving away from here um, in the car, and um, it was just a period of silence, of which a, a voice from within said, "I'm going to do this." And um, then he went on to continue explaining why it wasn't a good idea. And I said, stop the car. You're not listening. Mm. I'm going to do this. Mm. And I got out. And that was that. Wow. (laughs) And I haven't looked back. It was really really a life-changing decision in that from that point on, I've never paid any rent. Admittedly, um, you know, we lived in a tent for about six years. But the point was (laughs) one of the things that I realized in that moment of self empowerment or clarity that I needed to do it was that it wasn't just that I needed to do this particular project on my own, I needed to be on my own Mm -hmm. long enough to really know myself and feel adequate and complete without anybody else. Wow. Mm-hmm. I was still, yeah. yeah, I was still sort of measuring my self-worth through somebody else's gaze. Mm-hmm. And so from that point on, I kind of made a promise to myself that I was going to really walk my own path as an individual and not rely on or need anybody else to make my dreams come true. And so that's why, with such clarity and determination, I took on such a crazy project. (laughs) (laughs) But I did have help. I did did ask for help and guidance along the way. Yeah. I I just wondered if it if it physically changed you and I you know lifting all these stones if it made you like a like better suited to the advanced practice. 
Uh, I'm going to say no, that it was almost the other way around, Russell, that I um, I was very strong in the upper body because I was, you know, working third and fourth and third mm. series has all of those arm balances one after the other. Um, and I had a very strong willpower um, and there's an art to the rocks. You know, they speak to you and... Mm. If you if you if you learn how to balance the weight and to handle them, then you can move something quite heavy with a certain amount of ease. And I also think you know that um, you know having bunders and core stability mm. really probably saved me from potential injury working with such heavy objects. Mm-hmm. So, but as far as helping the practice. Probably not so much because, you know, you're bending and twisting and lifting and, you know, there's that extra work on your body that adds to fatigue. And, mm-hmm. you know, obviously I was teaching as well and yeah. I'm a Maestro style teacher, so that requires, again, physical effort. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I just I just asked because Harmony and I had a friend who was quite limp and soft and came to the practice as a kind of limp noodle. And then she started rock climbing. And it was at that moment that I think uh, Guruji and Sharat saw something in her and and then started her on advance because she had she had transformed herself through that work. And hmm. I just wondered if that was similar for you, if it had, something like that had happened. Not really. I was not a limp noodle, Russell, hmm. at yeah. no point. Did I um, was I that body type? As a twelve-year-old girl, you were you were you were an athlete. No, no. <laughs> As a twelve-year-old girl, I wasn't very. I wasn't even very sporty. I have um, I have two elder brothers who would describe me at that stage as clumsy and awkward. <laughs> I know. Truth be told, they uh, suggested to my parents that they didn't waste their money any further on my ballet education. Oh. Oh. Oh, Yeah. Oh. I know. hmm. Have they seen you dance? Or was that just, that was just, does your ballet teacher, did they agree with that assessment? It was. It was the ballet teacher's assessment, Russell. Oh, Oh, that's what your ballet teacher said. I thought you said that's what your brother said. I'm sorry. No. Oh, yeah, no, you should should give up. Yeah. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's That's why it was, in a way, it was quite satisfying. um, Later in life, there was this, you know, my brothers didn't really follow what I did or what I was into, you know, much more than just that continuous tease there isn't. Yeah. There doesn't really seem to be a point where your elder brothers ever look at you as anything other than their little sister, you know. Right. <laughs> and so there was this moment where um, uh, I was part of a documentary called Australian Stories, mm-hmm. and that documentary featured some work that I was doing with um, quadriplegics and paraplegics. It featured um, some some um, some coverage of the yoga and its origins and also the building of the house. But anyway, there was a part of it that showed me demonstrating 
yoga and mm. of course you know the demonstration that I did was lengthy but that is kind of like cut it up and showed all the fancy bits put together and yeah. <laughs> um, when my brothers saw it they just they did not know what to do with me they did not know what to do with that concrete image that they wow. had of who I was and um, yeah it was the first time they were really speechless for some, some way of, wow. <laughs> of making fun of me and yeah it was it was great not to feel like I'm, I am no longer that awkward yeah. uncoordinated clumsy person I have you know I have a good hold and mastery of my physicality and and though I probably would have still not described myself as an athlete I do um, feel very well and able in my body but it didn't come from I wasn't that floppy uh, of a flexible type, yeah, no, mm -hmm. sort of. Stiff. Can, can you mm, can yeah. you point to to the something in that in that girl, that twelve year old who, or ten year old or eight year old? Can you point to something where you can see the arc of her life, like where she's going? This happened, you know, and mm -hmm. like uh, that's everything else makes sense now. Um. I can see that my um, my affinity with the East, with India, and with Asian culture, was born from my father's fascination with it. So my father would travel annually to India, Tibet, Bhutan, Darjeeling, Nepal, and um, yeah, we used to sit as children with a map in the lounge room and as the postcards would come in, we'd like put a little red pin in each place that he went to and kind of chart his journey. And he was, you know, obviously had a fascination for the East. Um, he didn't appear to be um, spiritually practicing anything specific from the East, but he did come home with religious artifacts so our walls were covered in tankas and, you know, the bowl that was on the lounge room table was, was actually a human skull. And wow. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yes. What, what was he doing that would take him on these journeys? Well, um, I would say that he justified it for business purposes. He, um, <laughs> he, he, uh, he owned a, um, my parents owned a gift shop in the city of Canberra where, where I grew up, where they lived. And my father was working as a jeweler, but he was actually an artist. He was a painter and a sculptor. Oh, um, nice. But, you know, as you know, it's difficult to, to balance that and make a living and have a family. Is so, it? <laughs> yeah. I, I certainly found that. And um, Goodness. I, I imagine you as an artist did also, Russell. Oh, um, I don't know. You don't know? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that was, that was um, his reality. So what yeah. drew him to, to the East, I would say, was this, this desire to live um, a deep and full experience. And Australia is, you know, they call it the lucky country, but it's a very new country. And we're not, we're not steeped in history other than um, the Indigenous history, which mm -hmm. isn't 
um, shared with normally with general public. It wasn't part of our education system to be mm-hmm. steeped in the dream time. And right. so um, my, my father was European. He was born in Poland. He went to art school in Paris um, and then found his way to Australia. But he just, I don't know, maybe he was looking for more. Maybe he was a yogi. Who who knows? Mm. Who knows what motivated him? I was probably too young to think of it as anything but normal, you know, that he did that. Right. Um, So I would say that, uh, that those seeds of... Eastern culture and religious philosophy were a subtle part of my daily life growing up. And mm. though it wasn't conscious, um, so my father went to, to those countries, specifically India, every day of my life uh, until he died. And mm. then when he died, I went every year after that. He wow. died quite young in in your life. I think you were twenty. Uh, twenty twenty one. I'm not sure exactly, yeah. but yes, um, quite quite. I was quite young. Yeah. How did that happen? He had heart disease, angina. Uh, okay. Um. Yeah. Yeah. All those pierogies. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <Is> he, <laughs> was he Catholic? No, no. My father was Jewish. Uh, ah, yeah. European yeah. Jew. His um, family was uh, lost in the Holocaust. Right. Uh, he lost his parents and his brother and his sister. So as far as I know, he was the only survivor from his immediate family. Right. Um, I did later find a great uncle in Paris and some wow. distant, um, you know, distant, distant cousins, great, great yeah. cousins um, in Israel. And um, so, yes, but I didn't have, um, we didn't have a religious upbringing and we Mm -hmm. had a kind of eclectic sort of, you know, we didn't really do Christmas, but we didn't really do Hanukkah either. So it was a (laughs) little, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, a, and you know, and we we weren't doing Buddhist ritual at home, but my my father did sometimes dress in Tibetan costume, like wow, wow. <laughs> fantastic. He was really, kids. yeah, he was into it. Yeah. Well, I guess I did as well. I mean, a lot of the gifts that he brought back for me were mm-hmm. like Bedouin clothing from Tibet, and right. know, I would wear Tibetan boots and heavy, you know. Um, coral and turquoise jewelry and I was very you know I was I guess I was very exotic in my personal expression um, because I could Mm -hmm. be yeah because that was all on tap yeah that's that's unfortunate it's nice (laughs) it's nice to hear it's uh, you know my my family was also exterminated in Mm. uh in Hungary and I'm sorry uh, to hear that Russell for being uh, Jews, and yes. um, um, it's interesting. It does. It does. There's little. Maybe this is similar for everyone. Kind of coming in into the seventies. There was a, there was a break with institutional um, religions, and like the only thing that we had in the house were Buddhas as well. Mm. It's just mm. like neither we had Christmas. We were mm. Jews, 
Mm. We had Buddhas in the house. It was kind of <laughs> a really neither here nor there sort of situation. Yes, yes. How did it, that affect does, you? Did you? I was going to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, no, I think I think um, what I learned uh, is, and I think Harmony and I share this, and it'd be great if she talked about herself, but she won't. Um, <laughs> we share this is that we learned to be chameleons, yes, so that we wouldn't, you know, get hurt, yes, and so that we could fit in the, as best we could. Yes, and then you know, you know, uh, somehow um, prosper in our lives, you know, emotionally and, yes. and hope, hopefully. Yes, you know. does that resonate for you? Um, I didn't feel though. Um, you know, Australians growing up could be unkind to one another. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. um, but I didn't experience any kind of. Um, prejudice against me because I was I had um, a Jewish father, um, but I didn't present in any way um, as culturally different. I guess I was more cautious about who came to visit our house because of the skull human bone on the lounge room table than yeah. <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> but I didn't. Um, I have always felt an affinity and an attraction to Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And when I finished high school, I made my first international trip and that was to Israel. Mm. And when I was asked to kibbutz, yes. When I asked my mother about it, she said, over my dead body. And when I (laughs) asked my father about it, he quietly slipped me $500. And uh, so that was that was his encouragement and his blessing. I I was studying um, communal living at school, and so I had this interest in how people lived as community, and so that was you know part of the reason that I went, and then also that curiosity to know where your roots are, what your foundation is. But mm-hmm. I had a, I did have a mixed experience there because I found the people in Israel and specifically on the kibbutz were incredibly welcoming until they found out it was my father and not my mother. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I kept I was going to say something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and then that, to be really honest, kind of messed me up for the rest of my life. Yeah, as far that's as unfortunate. Where do you belong? Are you, I mean, I know sometimes Jewish people describe themselves or others describe them as the chosen people. So you can't just sort of right. say, hey, I want to be with you guys, you know. Because <laughs> yeah, you won't be taken in. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was, it was, I would say that that was a really pivotal part of maybe why myself and others in a similar situation sort out a practice like Ashtanga Yoga mm-hmm. because it's a, it's a way of finding yourself. And yeah. I couldn't find quite where to place my roots on the outside. And, mm-hmm. yes, definitely Mysore and my experience in India was very arms opened wide 
and mm-hmm. it didn't matter yeah. what I had believed in or what I believed in now or what you know where my parents came from that wasn't part mm-hmm. of it the welcome so yeah. I I had a you know I was constantly aware that I was different so I didn't really know why mm-hmm. people were so hostile but I I, I it was I clearly didn't fit in like you know I had this mm-hmm. you know like my nose hit puberty first and and then I <laughs> And I had, you know, a huge, massive Jufro and nobody knew where it came from, huh. you know, but it was like, I was different enough that I didn't fit in. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it's, um, I can, I can, what I really, so I took to the church first and, and that was really interesting because I felt like I, they welcomed me in and I belonged, but I was also acutely aware that they were not going to tolerate any difference at all, any difference hmm. of thought and or any difference in clothing or hairstyle. Hmm. And so it was like, I can't really, there's some things I can't change. Like I'm not, I'm not really going to fit here. Mm-hmm. And I was, I felt, I felt that intuitively. And I think that's, that's something else about India that that's really amazing is that what they're, what they're teaching isn't, didn't seem to be about fitting in or belonging. It was about tuning into a felt embodied mystical experience Mm. that was much less about um, being institutionalized. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think, you know, as you know, even things as free and open and spacious as yoga can then still depending on the nature of the minds that are attracted to them, uh, lead to a mess as well. Or a... yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing seems to be foolproof, Russell. Yeah, no, yes. No. We can't yeah. get rid of our humanity, can we? <laughs> we can't. People well, are people and they're just... Humans at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, good, for good or ill. <laughs> we're, stuck with, we're stuck with the... With the uh, sweetness and the bitter the yes. bitterness as well mm. I can't say I had that same experience of not you know I, I didn't feel that other people made me feel different and I didn't feel that I was different in a way that caused me any kind of suffering but I did feel a little different in the world that was inside my own head that mm. you know that that there was I guess an early curiosity or wondering or wandering or longing for something. Mm -hmm. It was just difficult to pinpoint what that something was and how I was going to resolve it. Mm -hmm. When you made your first trip to India, Mm -hmm. was it for the yoga? Were you on a search for self or what, what drove you there? Well, my first trip to India was directly after my father passed or maybe Mm -hmm. six months because I was at school. And um, I was um, a practicing Tibetan Buddhist and we have, you know, a gompa not far from where I was at university. Um, And so I went to study Tibetan Buddhism in Bodh Gaya Mm -hmm. and to spend some time in a monastery there. And um, so that was kind of, that was one motivation. And the other motivation was that 
when um, when my father passed away and he was buried, I just I couldn't feel him. I couldn't connect with him at the cemetery. I couldn't. I just had to keep saying to myself, "Your father's in the box. Your father's in the box." You know, like to make it real. And I kept mm-hmm. calling the funeral the wedding. You know, it was like I could I couldn't really piece it together. So I felt, you know, his spirit wasn't there. And so the wandering in India was an opportunity to, you know, I'd always hoped that I was going to go with him. That was, mm-hmm. you know, that was the dream. But that wasn't going to happen because he'd passed, I would say, prematurely. And though we go and we go. So in a way, it was like, let's let's do this. Let's let me go to India and 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 hold you in my heart while I'm there. Let me be in the space that you called home. You know. So that's that. That was my first trip. Mm, that's mm. precious. You were you at that time. You said you. I have a. I'm kind of a little confused. I, I you you were studying art and you're studying, uh, sculpture. Is that yes. correct? A fine art with did a sculpture I, major, yeah. Did I also hear that you were in finance? <laughs> finance. No studying. No, no, no. That maybe, was something. Maybe fine that's art. fine fine arts with an Australian yeah, accent. Yeah, that's what happened. Harley <laughs> told me you were studying fine art, and I heard finance. Finance. And I was like, that, that's really odd. I can, well, oh. I can tell you a thing or two about finance, Russell. <laughs> I would appreciate it. I can Fine. tell you. <laughs> don't don't pay rent for thirty years. Yeah, live in a, I, live uh, in a tent if you have to. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I did something like that. I my first trip to Mysore, I paid for it by um, uh, my university gave me a key to the art studio. Yes, and I was like, "Oh, I'm taking advantage of this." And uh, what were you doing I, in there? <laughs> I stuffed bedding into a closet, oh. and then at night I'd pull it out and I'd sleep on it, and I did that for a year. There you go. We're and on I the lived, same page here, Russell. Save yeah, I lived at my save money. Go to India. <laughs> Yeah. And then uh, sometimes the security guards would find me shaving in the bathroom, and I, and I was like. I've got a pass. <laughs> you can't prove I live here. You know? So fantastic. I I wanted to ask you about, about art school because I, I, I think it's um I there's all sorts of things that we could talk about, whether about the institutionalization of, of art making. But there's but at the at the root of it is the drive to work with material, as yes. you mentioned before, with the stone and to somehow um, bring out the parts of it that are that speak and the, that are alive and that want to make themselves. Huh. And you can feel it when they want to when they want to be. I think that's and, one side of it, Russell. But I also think it's a make manifest of the things inside yourself that you aren't yet able to articulate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not just the material speaking. It's yeah. one speaking and using the material as the way to give form to those thoughts or emotions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you say that because for me as a dancer, that's always how I felt dance was. It was that type of expression 
and you know growing up i wasn't great at communicating or or um identifying my feelings or being able to express myself mm-hmm. that way through language but through dance i could express all kinds of emotion and mm-hmm. um bring to life this this part of me that um i i was having difficulty connecting to otherwise and Absolutely. it's fascinating yeah, I think that the it, I art think, was like that for you. Well, I, I, I would probably say that people who have some form of expression in their life, be it dance, be it fine art, be it music, that they have a vehicle to get the inside out mm. when they can't always articulate it. So I would imagine that people who have the arts in their daily life are healthier people. That's a long mm-hmm. shot, but I just, you know. I, <laughs> I like it. I like it. Go for it. Well, that's <laughs> certainly, that's absolutely yeah. where I was going with the line of questioning is that the, the, I, I do the yoga, okay, and, yes. um, I, you know, I used to have ambitions for it, and <laughs> but what, what I really need, and it's, um, it becomes a mental health issue, if I don't go into the studio the art studio. The art studio. Then there's. I'm going to have a problem. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to feel good ab- yes. about anything. Yes. Whereas I'll I've been doing yoga the whole time, but I need to go there because there's something in there that needs to be ad- addressed. I just wanted to ask if that was true for you, or or does the or is it the yoga that's become an art form for you that and that that speaks for you? Hmm. Oh, that's a good question, Russell. Um, I first started practicing yoga when I was at art school. So it was actually when I came back from that first trip to India that I met my first teacher, Graham Northfield, and was introduced to the practice. And so they were both side by side for a period. What I discovered regarding art was that um, and that creativity and that expression was that I had a real need and love for it, but I didn't, I wasn't interested in what followed in order to make it something you did with your life. So I didn't have oh. an art for commercialism or for navigating the galleries or for you know walking the walk and talking the talk that wasn't why I was making it and so in a way um I I try I continued um I had a studio after I finished university for a period of time but then in a way the building of the house became the continuation of that artistic expression Mm -hmm as well as um, a lot of my artwork, you know, they used to call me Dina with a smile because, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go to art school and that at that point my, you know, my fashion sense was very holly hobby, you know, the long floral lacy skirt <laughs> yeah. and the, mm-hmm. the basket in the hand with the, you know, the sunflowers dripping out. And, you know, I had this, kind of, this, very, this very lightweight, ethereal sort of expression in my daily life, but my artwork was really quite dark. Mm-hmm. So I, I would make um, semi-figurative um, portraits out of 
uh, porcelain slip and layer them and make something that was white and refined. And then I would cremate it and let it break and then put it back together again, showing all of the broken bits. Or um, I would make um, a perfect replication of a human bust and then I would slice it into pieces uh, Mm. and then separate the slices slightly to sort of (laughs) show that, you know, that that there are there are parts of the whole and that we're all falling apart and that we're all mm-hmm. you know that that what what's happening inside the human being isn't what's being projected outside the human being and i think that was me so i was mm-hmm. expressing myself obviously through the artwork and then later i felt like yoga in a way was you know it again it was like sculpture on the move and mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. my insides were coming out through this meditation of movement, through this making a form with the body and breath. So somehow there was this connection between the two, and they were they weren't so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it reminded me what you were describing. There's a Leonard Cohen quote that Ring says, "Ring the bell." Well, then, yeah, there's that one too. That's the same the one. one. I was... It's the same <laughs> yes, one. Yes, ring the bell; the it still can ring. There's a crack in everything. And everything, yes, and that's how the light gets in. Exactly. <laughs> We're yeah. on the same page, Harmony. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I saw oh, Leonard yeah. Cohen live on the first time. I was never in um, Los Angeles, oh. and um, yeah, and there was like this collection of women who were singing the harmonies with him because oh. you know he has such a like yeah. a, a deep rustic yeah you know, mm-hmm. almost like conversational voice when he sings yeah. and then he was, there was born this, with a golden voice yes and then there was <laughs> these angels next to you know yeah and i was just like and then that line came out and i just you know i wanted to stand up and go hallelujah you know like yeah. <laughs> that's also it. a leonard cohen song <laughs> <laughs> There was, a, there was a kind of, there was a time in, in my life when, um, well, I guess maybe still now, but w- when I was just starting to paint, uh, my art teacher played that Leonard, mm-hmm. best of Leonard Cohen mm-hmm. um, album continuously in the yoga studio. I mean, in mm-hmm. the painting studio. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I'd hear like, so long, Marianne, like mm-hmm. I would smell oil paint. <laughs> and it was a kind of synesthesia that went together. Mm. <laughs> oh. uh, Leonard was a genius. Yeah, yeah. And uh, a poet like yourself. Were mm. you writing at the same time, Gina? Um, I think I've always written. I just mm-hmm. haven't always shared my writings. I, you know, yeah, I have a copious, just this huge collection of of things that I've written over the years, and I guess I've held a lot of them close, thinking, you know, one day I'll put it together and put it out there. I used mm-hmm. to use a lot of my writings um, and wrap them around my teaching, or, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now I often, yeah. Sorry, go on. Oh, I'm, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just going to say that I've written hundreds of erotic poetry. 
about <laughs> harmony. Mm-hmm. And someday we're going to be dead and Jed's going to find it. Mm. It's really sad. You might want to do something about that. <laughs> Take responsibility so he doesn't have yeah. to deal with your... Yeah. <laughs> but she quite likes them, you know. So, How many? They're all... They're all they're all extremely metaphorical. So you would never know. It's like about notches and belts some and things, you know. Some of yeah. them are quite extreme. Russell, keep it clean, please. <laughs> when you first started practicing, Dina, did you um have like a really emotional reaction or experience for the practice? Did you feel like that unraveling happening? Uh not in the very beginning. Mm-hmm. In in the in the very beginning, it was quite exhilarating and um, fulfilling, mm-hmm. and it was all a bit of a wonder lying out ahead. And so, in the beginning, it was you know it was physically challenging. As I said, I I wasn't. Um, one of those soft body types. And Mm -hmm. um, I did have some irregularities in my structure um, that Graham documented when we first met, um, which don't show up so much anymore. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of what my brothers were alluding to by calling me awkward and clumsy. Um, Mm -hmm. So I had a bit of a, you know, a pelvic tilt and I dragged one foot and Mm -hmm. then I compensated with a sort of a strange gesture with my other hand. And so like, I had a like gawkiness. Like, Sorry? Like drops, like a drop foot, like dropsy, like that, like a serious condition? Uh, well, well, let's not go there in public, Russell. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was more just like, you know, um, <laughs> let's just say it was, it was an, in, an imbalance of structure that didn't present okay. itself elegantly. And okay. you know, right. may yeah. also have been what those ballet teachers were sort of saying to my parents was like, you know, it's not going to be easy to work with this as in, right. yeah. Um, so in the beginning it was like largely physically exhilarating mm. and um, but later with repetition and um, getting beyond, you know, the nuts and bolts, the you know, the muscles and bones, and then later it began to to penetrate more mm. deeply. And um, I definitely, especially after spending time in Mysore, felt. Um, let's see, shy is a really polite word to describe my um, social inabilities at the time (laughs) so rather it was as if I could compose myself and present myself for short periods and then Mm -hmm. I just really needed and wanted to be alone and I would avoid the company of others where possible Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because I just felt really you know Sometimes, like I didn't have any skin on. Yeah, raw, raw. Yeah, yeah, mm. raw, and and not sure what to do with it really, because mm-hmm. a, a yoga was relatively new in Australia. Mm-hmm. Certainly, Ashtanga yoga was extremely new in Australia, mm-hmm. and I didn't really 
have, um, you know, you couldn't Google it. What happens when I fall apart? You know, (laughs) am I crazy? Is this is this yoga or is this me? You know, like, Mm. is this what's supposed to be happening? Um, None of those questions were really the answers weren't um, available easily. So I think that was part of why I just kept going back to Mysore because it seemed like I just seemed less crazy there, maybe because everybody else was as well. But you could, you could ask him questions and it's like, Guruji, I'm having like much uh, fever, fever. Is it, uh, it's normal. Yeah. And he would (laughs) do that. He would just knew the answer to these, to these questions that would pop up with, to the practice. Yes. You know, I'm going, I'm Guruji, I'm doing Kapatasa. I'm going crazy. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah. I didn't really three, ask three days her. crazy, then going. Yeah, crazy, much, 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 much crazy, then going. Yeah, yeah. I even in in the beginning, I think I was even shy there, yeah. and uh, I didn't, you know, I didn't ask too much, and I think, you know, even part of that was not wanting to expose how little I knew about anything. Um, wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Uh, but then in time, you know, you, your community built, the community built in Mysore and, mm-hmm. and there were people who were obviously having similar experiences that you could share with and yeah. um, it just sort of seemed to settle in time. You know, I, I, I also just found Ashtanga Yoga when I was in art school, just like by random chance, mm-hmm. Suda, Suda Weixler was at my university. I know. You Suda. probably know him. Yeah, he, he hosted us in Chicago quite a few times. Yeah, that's where I was at school, and he never—he doesn't speak, so I couldn't ask him any questions. <laughs> you know, he like three years. I didn't even know. I didn't. I, I honestly, I didn't know what it was called because he didn't say what it was. You probably didn't speak much either. I didn't. Yeah, no. <laughs> so exactly. I, I didn't speak, and so how does how does one just like walk into Graham Northfield's class like how does that mm. even happen I I don't know someone came to me and said um that there was a a teacher um teaching locally and I guess I I imagined some you know skinny Indian guy because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. they said he was really you know he was the real thing and yeah. then, right. you know, I go in and I don't know if you know Graham, but he's a he's strong <laughs> Aussie bloke down to earth. Um, yeah, but he he was into it and yeah. it was a wonderful start, actually, because um, he wasn't colored by anybody else's anybody else's need for it to be done this way or that way. He simply, he learned what he learned and he shared it with us in the way that he felt it was best translated. And, you know, uh, and, and it was good because I think he, he planted a few seeds that have lasted the distance mm-hmm. as far as people, yeah. you know, certainly myself who is still practicing today based on that introduction. Oh. Yeah. I think at this time, I think you mentioned that you had a, a car accident or you knew the car was submerged submerged in water mm-hmm. and you nearly drowned, I imagine, <laughs> and you had to fight your way out of the car. And then you went to Mysore. Is that like the, the 
the chain of events? Uh, I would say, I think that post the car accident, um, the the shyness and the introvertedness was then coupled with this, I'd, maybe a fear of death, who knows, but I was becoming less and less the person I knew I could be and mm-hmm. something needed to shift. And I had finished university. I had been working um, in a clinic. I'd also studied Chinese medicine. And I I don't know, I guess I felt the calling. And so um, Graham had left the area. I hadn't had the support of a classroom for a while and mm-hmm. wanted to go and check it out. I mean, I loved India, so I was already halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say that you needed to go because of, of what was happening to you after that accident? I thought it was a good idea, Russell, to do something to break that, yeah. you know, to break what I was doing. I was just really isolating and mm. a little lost. So mm. I had an opportunity at that point to go to um, the conservatorium in Brisbane to study music. Um, and I just, I just, Again, that sense of not being fully well. I didn't feel mm-hmm. fully well in myself as a human being. Um, yeah, so mm-hmm. a little more yoga maybe might have been the answer. <laughs> and I was still practicing. I was doing the 100,000 prostrations and um, um, some you know, visualization practices, but my mind found it difficult to really get traction with mm-hmm some of the Tibetan practices, that it felt like um, imposing more rather than getting down to the root of the issue, which was me. And Mm -hmm. so yoga felt more like a stripping back and Mm -hmm. than than an adding on. Um, And taking on another another degree with music, that's adding on. Going to India is a lot, is, yeah. I, India was kind of like a, it was like an excusable runaway. I'm going to India. <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah. I'm running away because what, what's happening here isn't good. It isn't yeah. healthy. And so off to Mysore. Yeah, sometimes it's like that you kind of need to have that complete shift in your patterns, in your associations, in your context in order to have like that true self or that true experience of of your of something permanent within yourself emerge because we're so contextualized that mm. that we're always sort of i feel like responding or or being you know our context like elicits certain responses from us and india is so different from when you're from you know australia or canada or america or probably europe it's just so different that you don't have the context to know who you are in those situations yes especially at the time when you were going where you know there's so little westernization happening there none, none. exactly <laughs> there was none yeah you yeah. had to like Communication was through the mailbox. Yeah. And all the mail went to Guruji's. And so he handed out the mail um, to yeah. the students. That was kind of really cool. He's very snoopy. 
(laughs) if you wanted to make a phone call you had to like book it sometimes days ahead and then you you still didn't know whether or not you were going to get through or your person on the other end was going to be there so Mm. yeah it was a it was a definitely different to what it is now Mm -hmm. yeah what was that like then the the first the first day what happened when you when you got to the shala? Um, well, I, I went before to to say hello and to sort of, you know, check if it was okay to come. And mm-hmm. um, I had the address and took a rickshaw. And I was actually with um, a girlfriend who I'd met in, in Bombay who was, how was it, Chennai, who was, um, sorry, also also going to go and work with Guruji. So that was really um, sweet timing. And um, we went and just knocked on the door. And um, Amar and Guruji were there in the in the foyer of the house. And it's pretty humble dwelling. And she just like laughed, like, where have you been? You know, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> what took so long sort of thing. And come in, wow. come in. And and um, just wanted to know everything about everything. It was mm. just, it was just wonderful. The that level of warmth and welcome. And Amaji had a better um, command of English mm. than Guruji, and it was almost like as if she was a a go between. You know, saying, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, this is Dina. It's a student of Graham." And because um, I'm sure Graham won't be listening to this, she said, oh, cucumber head. You know, I didn't want to say it. I've made that joke before, pointy okay. head, but I thought yeah. I'll be respectful with Dina yeah. on the phone. That's you right. Know? It wasn't me who said it, but um, Guruji <laughs> then did know exactly who who he meant and um, who she meant. Cucumber. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, look, the point was, yeah. the point was that it was uh, very welcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, very inclusive um, into the family. But then arriving at the shala the next morning, it was like a different scenario. So instead of going in the front door, it's around the side, and then you go down this set of stairs um, into, you know, what looks like a little dungeon really and mm-hmm. um, kind of concrete box under the house. So mm-hmm. that was, oh. I mean, Graham had given me good advice. He just said, stand at the front of the mat, and begin don't miss the beat right. and just see what happens and I got right through the primary series um on that first day and mm-hmm. it you know it ha- felt like it happened in a second the whole thing <laughs> it was like like I was in a state of shock um being in there but yeah. you know that that's the first day and you become more comfortable the more time you spend there mm-hmm. and you did back bends with him was that your your first adjustment? So. Yeah. I I I'm not I think so. Yeah, I think whatever he would normally do he would have done. Yeah. So but I, you know, that's a long time ago now. So. Yeah. <laughs> it was something it was uh I remember the first time he adjusted me like it was yesterday. Really? It was it was so emotional. Because you're in a room of like, I was in New York, it was a room of like 500 people. Wow. And he came over to me and he adjusted my hand in Parjwal Konasana. I've got huh. that adjustment nice too. Nice subtlety, yeah. 
Nice. Yeah. And I was like, wow, he touched me. <laughs> and it was just, <laughs> yeah. And he looked at me and, and it was like, oh, that this is, this is what I paid for. Is this. <laughs> okay. And it was, yeah. and it, it was seared into my memory for that. Yeah. You know, as, I, as I said, that first day definitely was sort of all just so, you know, it, it was like I was in a state of shock just being there. It was just too much. Mm-hmm. Too, I was too excited. Yeah. <laughs> there I was. There was, you know, there were six of us in the room, I think. Um, wow. And, Do you remember uh, who was there? Well, not specifically that first trip because I hadn't really met anyone because it was the oh, first yeah. day. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. what I can't, what I do recall about the first, because it was a three-month trip, was that the nature of the practitioner, they were like, I don't know, I want to say they were like me or I wanted to be like them um, in that <laughs> kind of like crazy lost souls. Mm -hmm. it wasn't it wasn't what you think now when you think about yoga and you know it's it's an everyday activity um by what what I would consider normal healthy people it was (laughs) they they were they were eccentric and interesting and from all over the world and um yeah you know not like not necessarily clean living health freaks or anything you know there was all sorts of behind the scenes habits going on and yeah yeah and then we would meet together and um and and talk and they would talk yogic philosophy and they would you know share and the whole thing was a bit of a wonder I must say and mm-hmm. I just kept thinking I, I was pinching myself how did I get here how yeah. lucky am I to to be here yeah. In this fine company of misfits, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as I said, I didn't, I didn't need to be shy there, because these these were people who were obviously a little lost as I was, and and actively looking for answers. You found mm. your people. I found my people, Russell. Yeah. Hmm. So let's talk about Jack. Ooh. Oh, you must have met you must have met Jack at that time, or not no. in Mysore though. No, oh. no, no. Tell I us didn't. how you met Jack. I love this story. Okay, but are we around the same time frame? I want to no. keep a linear time frame oh, here. Yeah. It's very linear. Okay, so I okay. I'm going to do my best here because that's that's something I do know because we got it. I I told, spoke with Jack this morning. I went to Mysore for the first time in 1989. Oh. And Jack went in 19 Now that's got to be wrong. He went in <laughs> He sorry, he went when for Guruji's 80th birthday, which was 1995. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um but I had met Jack for a few years before he went to India. So anyway, mm-hmm. I'd been going back and forward to India for quite a few years before I met Jack. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had already bought the land, as I said, and I had already started to build it. And one of my students named Howie um, was a carpenter and he was helping me with um, some of the framing work because, you know, I, my... 
I was more interested in in playing the part of doing the rock work than than the mm-hmm. whole thing. Uh, anyway, Jack, this is just a strange collection of events, but Jack chopped off his <laughs> finger in Melbourne working with um, power tools mm-hmm. and ended up coming up to the North Coast because it was warmer to stay with his friend Howie. Mm-hmm. And Howie says to Jack, I'm, I'm helping my yoga teacher um, build a house in exchange for yoga. Um, you want to come? And so one day he just showed up on the land here with, you know, his tool bag and his boots on and <laughs> said, can I, can I come to class? And I said, you can come to class and you can help, but, you know, and you can have all the money that's left at the end of the week. But it, you know, it, it may not equate to the work that you do, you know. So, because mm-hmm. um, it was really, it was really day by that day then, because I'd come back from India and have nothing, and mm-hmm. start again, and right. you know, so we'd buy the materials that were needed, and and then whatever was left, you know, we'd we'd split. Anyway, mm-hmm. so Jack would stay back a little bit after they finished the carpentry work and help me move some of the bigger rocks around. And someone said to me, hey, Dina, not everybody moves rocks for pleasure like you. (laughs) Watch out for that guy. Uh, uh, Anyway, he just sort of hung around a little bit and he was sweet. But, you know, Mm. I I was world-wise and I had left a perfectly good relationship to do all of this on my own. So I wasn't Mm. really interested. And I mean that in the nicest possible way, you know, I just, and I mean, mm. three months in, you know. Jack, You're hard, Dina. You're hard. <laughs> I just, I, I had a ticket to Mysore just a few months after we had actually even met. So I was out of there, you know. Yeah. Left. No interest. No time I, you know, <laughs> sweet no problem but you know, he, I, I did not see Jack as my match at that point. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then I came back and he was still kind of hanging around. And, and you um, came back from Mysore. I came back from Mysore, still hanging around. And then still hanging around, a few yeah. months after that, I got an invitation to go to teach in America for Chakamati. And at that point, <laughs> I'm still living in a tent and it's monsoon season here. And, you know, there's a, the shower is like attached to a tree outside and, uh, there's a an, a bath outside in the forest with a half a 44-gallon drum, which we lit a fire underneath to warm the water. But the water nice. was still from the dam, so the water was dirty anyway. So, <laughs> oh so this this invitation from Chakamadi was like, hello, sure, but yeah. I don't have any money to get mm-hmm. there. So they sent me a plane ticket. Which amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They had an apartment with a white tiled bathroom. I was in heaven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hot anyway, food. So I think I spent three or four months in uh, in Los Angeles and that's a whole nother story. And then I came back and Jack was still around. <laughs> and I still going, you can't be here. This isn't happening. I don't know. And then, um, you know, I had met someone a little bit interesting in in America as well, and I thought, oh, right, I'm just going to go back and just check out where that needs, if that needs to go somewhere. Anyway, mm-hmm. I went yeah. back to America and worked again for Chakamati. It was a wonderful opportunity because that was really the birth of 
of so many different types of yoga. You know, Brian yeah. Kest, who I'd met in, in Mysore, was oh. breaking out into power yoga. And my she... dad is yeah. Brian Kest's mom's mechanic. There you go, Russell. That was um, <laughs> definitely important information. And thank you for sharing it with us. <laughs> to spice up my story about Jack, yes, which yes, is yes, spicy yes, enough. Yes, I'm, sure it is. I'm sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, so <laughs> then uh, after the second trip to America, I came back and he was still around and I thought, wow, this guy is really tenacious. He's yeah. just, and he, he said, um, you, cause I said, look, I really don't know how I feel. And he said, it doesn't really matter. He said, I've got enough feelings for both of us. And I'm thinking, wow. Okay. <laughs> so I said, I'm, I, I have given up a lot to walk this path and I don't really want to compromise. I want mm -hmm. to go back and forward to India and at some point I may never choose to come back to Australia. That's how invested I was in my mm -hmm. practice and my, um, in my want to really become a whole human being. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, if you're prepared to walk beside me and you think you can keep up, by all means. But that needs to come from you, not me, because I'm not, I'm not planning to meet you halfway. I'm going this <laughs> way. Mm -hmm. Anyway, as time passed, I came to see in Jack that he had naturally a lot of the human qualities that I was trying to develop within myself through the practice of yoga. Hmm. Like what? Why well, he's settled in himself hmm. and he's not, he wasn't wrestling with demons in the same way. And he's contented with simple things. Uh, mm -hmm. He didn't need to change the world. He didn't need mm -hmm. to do anything to the world, really. He just was, <laughs> he just he was, was like contented. The nature. Yeah, <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was good. There was, there was much in who Jack was and is that has played a large part in me being able to be uh, a, the best version of myself and to mm. share that. Yeah. Mm. So that was Jack. And so... Mm. I wasn't someone who encouraged my students to go to Mysore. I found Mysore to be a very intense experience. Um, and so if someone wanted to go, they had to go because they were really ready and opened to it and, mm -hmm. you know, and the full scope of it. So that was in 1995, Jack made his first trip. That was Guruji's 80th birthday. and. Um, yeah. And then, um, you know, Guruji and Amar, they're like the matchmaker people. They, <laughs> they, they, they're, they're really all about family. And I had mm. communicated that I was in a situation, I was in a, in a place where I was able to stay uh, for a longer period, if not indefinitely, in Mysore and really deepen my studies. And, um, Guruji just laughed and said, no, you've got to go back and you've got to teach and take one husband and make one family was kind of like mm. the instructions because he said, you know, it's easy 
to just disappear in India. It's oh. it's difficult to to balance the two realities of being sincerely on an inward spiritual quest and to be a useful human being. And so that was mm-hmm. a really a, a real gift. And um, so on our next trip, we went um, to the jeweler with the whole Joyce family to pick out <laughs> oh. my Mangala Sutra. And uh, at the time we just, you know, we've got a small one because they're made of gold and we convinced him that we, you know, we already had a chain in Australia, you know, that someone was going to give us the gold chain or we had it because we just, we couldn't afford to do any of that. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then um, made plans for, for them to marry us. And they married you in Australia. That's right. Yes. Guruji Mm -hmm. was doing a tour um, with Amar and I think it was Sharat's first time to Australia uh, mm-hmm. with the family and um, and yeah we had a ceremony it was so it was so wonderful the um, I love the flexibility that they permitted like I really mm-hmm. needed to be married outside um, I just it wouldn't make any sense to me to be in a building and right. so it was um, they were just like, first, no, it has to be like this. So <laughs> here's the one thing I've learned about dealing with Indian people. It's the, yes. three, it's the three times no syndrome, you know. <laughs> Whatever you ask on the first round, you know, they'll say no. Like, for example, Sharat, would you like a coffee? No. And then Sharat, would you like a coffee? No. Sharat, would you like to have coffee? Would you like to join us for coffee? Okay. Yeah, so, <laughs> so uh, you've got to ask everything three times, and that's kind of like the tenacity of Jack. I said no. I said no, and he just <laughs> kept saying, "You know, will you marry me?" And I was like, "Okay, yeah. or oh, whatever." <laughs> <laughs> so, we did. so we did, and so they held. Um, it was really like. Both Amar and Guruji did it together because I think it had been a long time since he had performed that ceremony for anybody. Mm-hmm. She had a good memory of how it went. And, of course, it was all in, you know, a mixture of Kannada and Sanskrit. But the thing that he stopped to translate was Sharadashanam, uh, which is like a thousand, a thousand years, don't mm. change it. So mm. for a thousand years, you have to have the same partner. Mm-hmm. And I know this is a really strange thing to say after all those years of trying to reject Jack, but (laughs) it feels like we had already done some of those a thousand years. Yeah. By the the time I settled myself into it and opened myself up to that being my path, that I was going to be a married family householder woman, um, Mm. as soon as I let go of all of these other ideas that I had for myself and relaxed into it, it felt really natural and really right. And I just I just couldn't believe how fortunate I was not to have lost him in all of that mm. pushing away. Mm. Yeah. So we're 30 yeah. years, 30 years together this year, Jack and I. That's fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's a feat, especially in today's day and age. But yeah. that's, 
that feeling where you you feel rightness and you feel like oh this is easy yes is so rare and so special yes and I th- I I I do recommend divorce for people <laughs> who haven't tried it because if you don't have that, you need to yes. go fucking find that, and <laughs> it you know, means everything to be able to walk around the house every day feeling oh, oh yeah this is perfect. But Russell, it's I must so say, important. I also feel like it's not that you find that necessarily because it's in somebody else. I think mm-hmm. you find it in by allowing yourself to reside in a place within yourself where that there is another human being out there who's prepared to love you for who you are and what a gift that is. And mm-hmm. are you able to be the person who can love them for who they are? Mm-hmm. And the premise behind our relationship is what can I do to support you mm-hmm. to make your path forward your path forward easier Mm. and so both Jack and I nurture our individual paths and that's allowed us to be together yeah Mm. that's so important so I think it's yeah yeah sorry go on Harmony no I was just gonna say it's it's amazing to have that union and that that joining, but also maintain your individual dharma in a sense, your individual purpose. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't hurt any that he is a sincere practitioner. You know, he's he's up in the dark. Um, my alarm goes off at 3.45 and, you know, he's Oof. up making the tea and, yeah. um, make, you know, smoothing the way so that that everything is, you know, as, as easy as it can be. And and he's been practicing daily since since those very first classes that he came to. Yeah, mm. yeah. He's a he's a special energy in your room when you two are practicing together, for sure. Mm. Nice, I agree. Mm. Yeah, I think and it's also amazing adjustments as well. He, he does. Yeah, he's like the gentle giant. Yes. <laughs> Well, let's call a spade a spade. Like we're here to practice with Dina, though, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's it's. I mean, yes, yes. Of course. <laughs> oh, but, uh, I know. I, I adore Jack. I, yeah, you're um, be- you beautiful team together too. Thank There's you. A, thank yeah. you. Yeah, we we work nicely together. We're very complementary. Hmm. Hmm. I, I like I think it's really important to me as a as a teacher when I'm with Harmony to constantly keep that at the front of my mind. These people are here to, to study with Harmony. <laughs> and I'm there in support. I am a, a color commentator mm-hmm. and and I also I you know I'm good with my hands, sure, but they're here for her. And I think that can be really tough for a man mm-hmm. to not thrust himself forward in any in any room especially well especially a white man to thrust himself forward in any room that he's in mm. and say you know this is all about me here mm. and i was i really i really admired jack for that mm. that he let you be the star and he was in support and i and i honestly thought of him as a as a model for how i was going to to teach alongside harmony how lovely 
Um, Jack's never wanted to be the upfront man, that's for sure. I haven't wanted to be the upfront woman either, um, but just it's just <laughs> kind of what happened. Um, you know, as I said, I've come a long way from um, hiding under the house when someone knocked on the door to being able to <laughs> to, pre- to present myself in front of people. Um, you know, those who know me well, for example, uh, those recent confluences where there's 500 people in the room, you'll notice I'm always the one who's closest to the doorway in case I've got to get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got your escape plan ready. Absolutely. absolutely. But, um, yeah, Jack's not that person. That's he doesn't He doesn't need to be the star of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He also doesn't have the same education or... Um, the training of the yeah, the, yeah, yeah maybe. The room time with Pitabios. yeah and the, the yeah the room time with Pitabios, but but also you know I sp- I spend all day um, continuing my studies all day every day it's like <laughs> I'm fascinated by you know yoga as a whole path and um, and so I'm I'm always trying to feed myself so my I'm continuing to grow and evolve as as a person mm-hmm. and as a teacher and. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of, but Jack is a, is a lovely teacher of his own right, and he mm-hmm. has his own classes as well. Yeah, I wanted to to ask you. I, I feel like it, for any senior teacher, and any, I guess anyone older than Harmony and I is a senior teacher to us. Uh, but for the senior teachers in our mind, no one, in my experience, more embodied Guruji's presence in the room than when I practiced with you. And it, it, seemed, it seemed like um, that your way of teaching was the most like his, where you were trying to address uh, the core conditioned behavior, the hala hala, the core conditioned behavior that is at the root of problems in the practice. And it, maybe other people will kind of you know, they're just kind of holding the space. They're just opening the door and you go in and they'll adjust unity to hosta. But working with you was, it was like having a light shined on me. And it it was very, um, it made me feel very vulnerable, but also aware that I was getting the best teaching because you could see me. Does, mm. does, that, does that resonate with you? Do you feel like... Like you saw the way that Guruji taught and he said, yeah, I know what he's doing and I'm going to give that, <laughs> I'm going to transmit that. No, I, I, I don't think, if anything, you know, I I can't say that I've tried to model my teaching on Patavi Joyce. Um, what Guruji gave is the method and mm-hmm. um, and a space for and a space for us to um, unravel through the mm. method. And he, he, how can I say? And then through that space, personal evolution happened. But my, um, however, he spent all day with people, looking at people through what they were exposing whilst practicing mm-hmm. and and i spend 
all day or a lot of the day, mm-hmm. six days a week, sometimes seven, looking at people as they make their way through the practice. And after time, I would imagine <clears throat> if you look at anything superficially, then you see what is superficial. But if you linger and you look with your full attention, then more of that person is is exposed. And so what I see when I watch someone practice is not just the shape that they're making with their muscles and their bones, but what it is of themselves that they're bringing to the practice, to the posture. And sometimes I don't think that they're aware of what they're bringing. And Mm -hmm. maybe illuminating that, um, helping them to to see or feel into what they're bringing, uh, is what you might be describing, Russell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It's um, it's incredible level of intensity. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, we've only worked together for a moment. You and yeah, I, that's right. and yeah. and yes. I do recall that that a moment in that particular moment was probably, um, I would say that maybe you brought a level of intensity of your own into that room <laughs> before I even got there, <laughs> 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 because of, because of what was happening in in your life at the time, mm-hmm. and so yeah. I, uh, I think we might might leave it there. I didn't. I I wasn't trying to ex. I wasn't trying to make you feel unsafe, or overexpose oh, gosh, no. you, or or anything like that. No, no, not not at all. Um, that's and forgive me if I if I gave that impression. Just that when um when you know someone can see what's going on, it's like you know that's there's there isn't really any fooling anyone. Mm. Yes, I think you, you can't fool you me, have Russell. A... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> <to> you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could tell that you were on to me right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have a a particular on. way of teaching, Dina, though that's very penetrating, hmm. um, and I think that's what Russell's kind hmm. of alluding to that that your perception feels very much beyond the physical body it feels like you're penetrating yes. the layers you know of maybe yes. the koshas of maybe the mm. the energy patterns of the emotions mm. and you're able to um to hit that button <laughs> you know whatever <laughs> button that is for someone <laughs> that that is that is the trigger for transformation should they choose to kind of go that that route and and it is a choice i mean you're not you know pushing anyone into those areas but you there's a way of of like russell was saying shining a light on mm-hmm. on certain things that that can open up into this this beautiful sort of opening or not you know depending on which the reaction yeah which way someone goes <laughs> maybe impressive. well thank you I, i'm going to take that as um you know that's a that's very um complimentary i sort of feel it's a bit like 
samyama, you know, you, you, you concentrate on the person and you fully focus on them and drop away everything else. And then it's almost as if, you know, when there's nothing else, it's like that meditative connection where you can then be empathetic with what's happening inside them. And then, um, and then there's this sort of sense of, of oneness where you, um, can use that information to almost make them for, to almost help to ho- hopefully guide them towards seeing it as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know whether that was useful, but I think that's what, that's how that's that skill or that refinement has developed by really being present with the student, with the practitioner in that moment when you're interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you feel it. I mean, as, as a student in your room, you feel that, mm-hmm. that presence and that, that mm-hmm. amount of presence mm-hmm. uh, that you exude as a, as a <laughs> teacher is, it, it is intense because most people aren't that present in their daily life no. or interactions, you know, no. and when someone's really present, I think that was, you know, Patabi Joyce also had that yes. that yeah. presence. Yes. Oh, and now I understand what you're saying, Russell. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you. Yes, he definitely had that that presence. It was kind of like it would bring you to a heightened state within yourself. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and then, also because you knew, like, what are we all there for? You know, mm-hmm. we're all there in, you know, satsanga. We're all there we're seeking some kind of truth within ourselves and you know someone's looking at you just deeply looking at you and you know it it forces you to deeply what are, what are they seeing you know you yeah. to what do they see and then you then you must look so their gaze is is guiding you to to gaze in with that intensity as well mhm mm-hmm. I can and imagine that, that makes people uncomfortable, actually. I do. I feel, I feel you feel slightly uh, transparent. And, yes. And I, I think especially for me uh, with Sharat, I had always felt transparent with Sharat. Like my ambition was obvious and, um, you know, disgusted him to a degree. And... Um, <laughs> And it it was the thing that was preventing me from going forward. Going forward, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. You were standing in your own way. I think that's yeah. a really a really common theme for people mm. that they're they're not really aware of the self sabotage and and the deep clinging to past patterning and uh, ways of thinking. It's not mm-hmm. so easy to disentangle yourself from yourself. Because then, what 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 do you hold on to? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's f- true. I found a I found a quote from you that's sort of apropos. <laughs> like many, I have found that any form of singing, especially in public, feels exposing, and can be profoundly uncomfortable. And it, I think it's a little bit like what we're talking about, like that. Um, but there's a magic to that exposure that we're sort of terrified of. Mm. 
Mm. Well, I think with singing, I, I think when you're singing, maybe there's this fear of judgment and maybe singing, when we sing, we're often like singing out and we're, uh, it can sometimes be like in the form of performance that it's either it's good or it's bad or whatever. Mm. And so, um, so you might feel exposed in that way. But I think maybe when I wrote that, it was more like related to, it's like the voice is related to the, you know, to the chridayam, to the heart center. And, mm. and somehow a little bit of you seeps out into the sound. And mm. um, like it's really difficult to sing if you've been crying or, yeah. Um, right. And mm. I find within myself um, that the wonderful difference between singing and chanting is that chanting seems to be sound that is guided in, even though it, mm. it goes out, but it's to sort of, you're, you're singing to the core of yourself rather than singing out to the world. And, um, and that it's not about right or wrong or good or bad. It's just about vibration. And mm. that vibration is intrinsically connected to your breath. And your breath is intrinsically connected to your life and your mm -hmm. prana. And so uh, by evoking sound uh, and singing in your kind of connecting to what one might call Ishwara Pranidhanani, to that sort of bhakti quality of, of connectivity and surrender. How did you begin your journey with the singing and the chanting? Huh. Um, well, in my first trip to Mysore, I had a singing teacher, a classical Indian singing teacher, and I was in the class with all the little all the Indian girls. And mm -hmm. they teach singing a lot like they teach yoga, um, in that you you start with something simple and everybody does it. And um, and then the next day you come back and you do it again. And as you gain some level of mastery, they add on the next thing. And right. so, um, so everyone would sit together and everyone would sing the basic part. And then, you know, the more advanced girls would continue on and, and sing the more complex parts. Mm -hmm. And um, I had to go early, obviously, because I was, you know, the beginner. And then as I was, <laughs> as I was like leaving walking walking away um i could hear them kind of like mimicking and making fun of me because at that point i couldn't get myself out of the sound so i was still like adding a little kind of blues jazz feel to the to the, yeah. uh, <laughs> the classical right. indian you know, I could, I, there was still too much of me in it and um, so yeah. that was and in and in a way that was really um the seed of a, a an interesting and profound learning, and that is, we we hold on to being an individual. We we place value in being interesting and special and unique. Mm -hmm. And over the last thirty years, what I've come to understand is that when you stop being so interesting you stop being so separate from everybody else. 
when you mm-hmm. can just sing it or practice it in its purest, simplest, easiest form, then everybody can come together. And when you get all that separates you out of the way, you realize that it's the sameness in each one of us that makes us truly special. Mm-hmm. And mm. for me, yeah, that's, you know, that's a profound insight to come to mm-hmm. because everybody is out there trying to be the best <laughs> and trying to be progress and trying to be more, you know, more interesting mm-hmm. than everybody else. But actually mm-hmm. what we're looking for is all the same thing. Mm. Yeah. And it's dropping that separation, dropping that compartmentalization of you've got a big nose, you're that, you're separate to me. Mm -hmm. No, you're exactly the same as me, regardless of whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Buddhist or do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's through the process of chanting that I have really been able to grasp and embrace that wisdom. Hmm. And you have a chanting course that you're that you were teaching online earlier in the pandemic era. Uh, I did, I did. Yeah. Um, let's see. When the pandemic began and everybody shut house, yeah, um, it was actually a great relief to me because I I realized that I hadn't taken a pause <laughs> in a long time. You know, I hadn't stopped in a long time and I took a deep exhale and I just leant back into it. And people said, you know, will you teach online and um, what will you offer? And I just said, you know, for the moment, nothing. For the moment, nothing. Um, And then I had committed to teaching philosophy for another yoga school as part of their teacher training. And Mm -hmm. I really enjoy having the opportunity to kind of turn people on to yoga as a spiritual path rather than just um, an asana-based exercise program. And so that's, you know, it's it's quite exciting when you see the lights and the interest go on, when people kind of come to know how much is really on offer through this path. Mm. Um, Anyway, Obviously, I couldn't do it in person, so they asked if I would do it um, as pre-recorded. So that was my initiation into the digital world as far as teaching goes. Um, Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then, as I sort of started to kind of regain a little energy and inspiration. that experience had given me some tools to sort of lay down a, um, was like an eight-week practice that had chanting and basic breathing that was suitable for everyone. But really one of the things that people were coming to me during the, the pandemic lockdown periods was, you know, they were becoming depressed. Mm-hmm. So one of my recommendations was to take five breaths in upward dog instead of downward dog, you know, keep your head up, mm. so to speak you know, heart open mm. and head up mm. and and to um, use this moment of having more time and space to 
to make sound and to express yourself and to breathe deeply because, you know, chanting is really just an extended form of pranayama with intention mm-hmm. behind it. So, yeah, I made a little course. I was pretty proud of myself. I got to learn some computer <laughs> skills and do some editing and, and all of that. And um, I have some people give me feedback that they, you know, they just stopped at week three and they've done week three every day for f- six months. And they just wow. like this feeling of sitting and breathing with me in the morning. So they just play it over and over again and find it soothing. They're not really in a need to have more knowledge or information or more chance or more variety. They just they kind of found the the dosage that worked for them and stopped there. So it's been really mm-hmm. nice to feel like it's um, reached some people's lounge rooms and been helpful. Mm. Well, I want you to offer it again. <laughs> Do you now, Harmony? <laughs> yes. I'm putting in a formal request. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny like anything, you know, and I'm sure that Russell can really relate to this as an artist is you, you make something and at the time you're like, you're you're fully there with it. And then time passes and it's like, huh, what's next? You know, yeah. Like, it goes right in the bin with all the other stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So now I look at, I can't even look at it without cringing, but what can I yeah. say? <laughs> yeah. Uh. That's just... You're like yeah. the Tibetan monks making the beautiful mandalas with the sand and then wiping it away. Wipe it away. Yeah. Wipe it yeah, away the so. point was to do it. You don't want yes. you don't want that in your house. It's dusty. No. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so before we let you go, I want to ask you a couple questions about what it was like for you to become a mother and continue practicing asana at a very advanced level. It's, it's mm-hmm. at a certain point it's like a you must feel that there's a sacrifice made to this enormous achievement that you've made. Oh. Um, I'm going to go with a sacrifice made to the enormous achievement. No, because having children, um, changed me Hmm. and, uh, made me a more compassionate and empathetic and understanding practitioner and teacher. So, Firstly, um, I had already gone about as far as I was likely to go as far as asana education. Once I'd finished the fourth series, um, and, you know, as you know, at that time, there were no shortcuts. There was no cutting. So you had to do all of third, every pose, and then all of fourth up to where you were and then add on one by one by one. And that took an enormous amount of stamina and focus and will. And mm-hmm. whenever you've got a series that's half finished, that's how you feel, like you're <laughs> half finished, yeah? mm-hmm. like yes. you're not up the mountain. And I felt like walking up that fourth series mountain, carrying third series with me every step <laughs> of the way, oh my I, I, um you know, there were people who were saying, yeah, you're there. And I'm thinking, where, where am I? And so I wanted to stop and sit and integrate and refine 
the practice and refine mm, uh, to sit with all that what I had done before had created. What space, what change, what parinama, what transformation had occurred by putting myself through this process. Let me just stop for a moment and sit with that without this need for any more of anything. I mean, when does it end? Poses in third and fourth are unnecessarily contortionistic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, surely all of that physical energy could be put to better use building my house or (laughs) (laughs) digging out a swimming pool or something. Exactly, Harmony, exactly. (laughs) So so uh, I just, I didn't need, I was fully aware I didn't need more, um, certainly of asana. So sometime after that, um, Jack and I started tossing around the idea of creating, of having a family. When, when we were married, in um, the suggestion of children came up and Guruji had said, you know, Australia is a, it's a very big country. And then I think Amar said, you, you should have 10. Yeah, <laughs> oh my God. yeah the, you need to fill, <laughs> fill the desert with children. You should have 10. And it was like, oh, my God. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, they ask for something, you do it, you know, especially yeah. Amar. <laughs> yeah. I, would do anyth- I would do anything for her. So Aww. anyway, we started to talk about it and um, – neither Jacqueline or I were people who sort of had that clear vision, oh, yes, I want to have a family. Mm-hmm. And if anything, I'd definitely gone through a period where, as I said, I didn't want to be dependent on anyone nor have anyone dependent on me. So it was quite a shift, yes. Um, mm-hmm. But we we discussed it and then we made the decision um, that we'd give it a go. And um, four months later we conceived what would become Zoli. And um, to be really honest with you, growing a child inside your own body, that was so miraculous. And Mm. it just filled me with such a sense of wonder and uh, magic. I, I, I couldn't quite fathom it. It's like my body knew how to do it all. I didn't even need to read a book and she was going to have 10 fingers and 10 toes. You know, I didn't, I didn't have to study it. It was all already a part of me. And there's, there's a real, there's something amazing in that. And then bringing forth life into the world and potential, it was really something beautiful that um, I'm so glad that I didn't miss out on through some Mm -hmm. idea or fear of sacrificing. And then, um, you know, we didn't really miss a beat. I was traveling. I actually remember arriving in Chicago, and I don't think I'd even mentioned to Suda I was pregnant, but I was (laughs) seven months pregnant when I showed up for that workshop. And and that was, you know, that was like the middle of the trip. I think we we got home. Wow. And I was in India for Sharat's wedding at three months pregnant. So I didn't really stop. And then we Mm. had souls and then we went around the world with a newborn baby. Um, (laughs) And I paused going to India because I didn't want her putting everything in her mouth, you know, um, when she was so small. 
And then, so we wanted to wait till she was two at least before we went. And then I um, fell pregnant with Isaac and he came along without intention um, like un- unexpectedly, like I, I had to put on a lot of body weight to, to get mm-hmm. Zoli. I was very um, thin and I don't want to say malnourished, but I just, you know, I wasn't, I feel like you've got to become a, a lush. You've got to put the cow out into the paddock, my mother would have said. You, know? like, you put the cow into the paddock and you, you, eat, you eat the lush grass and you become... You become really abundant. It's like women don't fall pregnant during a famine. And um, it's yeah. true. Yeah, it's ballerinas true. or advanced athletes don't fall pregnant. You have to have a muscle fat ratio on your body. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I worked for Zoli. You know, I, I worked towards being what I needed to be. I softened my practice. I softened my mind. I softened my body. And I fell and I conceived. Um, mm-hmm. But Isaac came when I was just getting back my full practice just getting back my bundles, you know, just going, yay, I can still do this. And, and then he arrived. <laughs> so, uh, but then again, we didn't miss a beat. We, we traveled the world with a brand new baby and a two-year-old. God help wow. me if I could, don't know what madness obsessed us to do that. <laughs> it's a lot. That's it's a lot. lot. And then, you know, and that's when I probably met you in India when, Shira, yeah. uh, when sorry, Isaac was too mm-hmm. and then we've gone wanna... back with them every year every yeah. second year actually yeah sorry go mm-hmm. on awesome. i wanted to to ask you about about raising children um i think i probably struggle with it more than others but um you've you've i imagine you in this kind of tropical paradise there yes. in australia and totally say un, unstructured jungle living and yet you and jack have this wonderful self-discipline to your morning and your day and there's a kind of contrast there and i wonder what that's what that's like for children i mean for those two are they are they little you know are they jungle children or are they they part of your discipline you know how how do you how do you measure that how do you how do you structure their lives huh well i would say in the beginning they just got dragged around and did whatever we did and you know <clears throat> excuse me there's a price to pay for that um because often children respond very well to to routine and when you're mm. catching airplanes and changing in sleep environments and time zones all the time that you know that can be quite disruptive but also mm they become adaptable and that change is the norm for them. Mm-hmm. And um, they, I was back teaching when Zoli was three weeks old, so she was wow. in the classroom um, for that period. Like I would breastfeed during pranayama and then we had a kind of a hammock that hung on a hook in the shala and she was just inside there and... Um, so being a part of the yoga community was um, was natural for both of the children. In fact, I think they grew up thinking that everybody did yoga and everybody was vegetarian and everybody, <laughs> you know, like that because that's yeah. just what, and everybody went to India and everybody had ridden on an elephant. What? You haven't yeah. ridden on an elephant, you know. So, <laughs> so, yes, they had this really extraordinary start. And then even when they were at school, we just kept, we just kept 
going on all of the holidays. The mm-hmm. schooling that they're a part of was um, the Waldorf system, Steiner School. Oh, right. Yeah. Which we really enjoyed because it, you know, embraces the full person rather mm-hmm. than just academia. And that mm-hmm. was very supportive. You know, we were no television, no uh, computers or telephones early. Uh, education is based around singing. There's no junk food allowed at the school. Um, so there were a lot of really healthy guidelines that helped to give structure um, the teachers were concerned about us continuing to travel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, has it created problems in the children? And they said, well, actually not yet. And I said, well, when it does, mm. um, you know, um, yeah, when, when it does, then we'll reassess. But for the moment, these children are children of nomadic yogis. So that's mm. what we do. Mm. Um, so... They've both been to Mysore and practice mostly with Saraswati, maybe half a dozen times, mm-hmm. but neither of them practice now. Um, mm-hmm. But we I don't remember really... Zach when he was five years old at Purple Valley. He would yes. come in and do the full primary series, but like maybe take a break and leave in the middle and then come <laughs> back and finish up. You know, it was so cute. So but he cute. just, yeah, he just did it all. It was incredible. He had to go. I'm hoping that they both come back to it later, you know, but all I was ever yeah. hoping for was two well adjusted, happy. Uh, mm-hmm. children and they're both pretty cool my kids I like them a lot as adults I like who they are they have a really strong sense of 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 self as individuals mm. but <clears throat> sorry when you said uh, Russell were they like you know hippie bush children there was a period where <laughs> yeah, yeah. Zoli just said mom can't we just live in a real house because uh-huh. as you know, none of our none of our rooms are joined together. And if you want to go from the kitchen to the bedroom, you have to go outside. And if it's raining, you get wet. Nothing's right. joined. It's all, you know, it's yeah. all integrated into the landscape. So she wanted to have a normal house for quite a while and be like normal yeah. like the other kids. Yeah. Um, and, I, yeah. and Isaac, like he's he's really into like designer label and um, yeah, he's, he's sort of very smooth and chic. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> our our child yeah. is really into um, I, is it hip hop? Hip hop. How do yeah. you say how do yeah. you say that? Hip hop. Yeah. What it, yeah. he wants to be in a like a boy dance band. <laughs> boy yeah. band. I, yeah. I think if he does that, he'll have a lot of fun and he'll get the girls. Yeah. yeah, I think he, he won't have any trouble with that. No. I think, and you know that's already... what life's about, isn't it, Russell? <laughs> yeah. a lot of fun and getting the girl. Yeah, huh? well, I mean, what you want is a lot of it. Yeah, until it becomes Not too much. Because, until it becomes too much, and then huh. it's like, oh, I've had too much of that. Yeah, yeah. that's really where you want to be. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> you should best speak just for yourself, I think. Yes, I think so. Well, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to don't want to die in the vine, do you? Um gosh. It's it's he has no interest at all in, in yoga at all. And and I it's I it's I don't mind as much as I thought I would that he has no interest at all in yoga. Yeah. Well why would and it's you? Like, yeah. You, yeah. I mean, I mean it's you, his you probably life, enjoyed the freedom from your family to choose your own direction forward and your own set of beliefs and your own set of practices. And I think it's wonderful that 
our children have exposure to those things, to yoga mm-hmm. and, and to the quality of human beings that are involved in the yoga path. Um, yeah. And I think they carry that with them, whether or not they're practitioners, practitioners of mm-hmm. yoga or not. And as I said, I, I believe that the seeds that brought me to the place I am now were seeds of my own father's and mother's curiosity. And mm-hmm. so I think that regardless of whether he's practicing, Jedi is practicing, he's steeped in it. He, mm-hmm. he lives with it through you. And so it's the positive influences of yoga happen in every human interaction that he will have because he's seen you both as examples mm-hmm. of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he's doing it, Russell. He's doing mm-hmm. it in yeah. his way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, finally, in our <laughs> intro to you, we yeah. said... Well, Ad, it's from Adam Keen. I, I cribbed it off him. And he's probably yeah. cribbed it off something else. But he <laughs> describes you as a death walker. Yeah. And we have to know, what, what is, is a that? death? What is that? Okay. Yes. So a, a death walker is probably akin to a death doula. And it's somebody who helps other people make the transition from life to death. Mm. And um, in my... In my personal case, I also um, work with the body once it's passed, um, Mm -hmm. creating, um, I guess, a ritual with the person and and with the people involved with that person. So Mm -hmm. helping to create a ceremony that's inclusive of the body. Hmm. so yeah and so um there is a training a death walker training that helps to inform you as to all the processes and choices you have so that you don't just have to go um to the funeral parlor and be channeled down you know a very narrow path that this is your option of how to allow that person to make the transition Mm-hmm. So I think the thing that it might say after Death Walker is what does it say about does it say lover of life or something like that? Yes, it does. Yes, yeah. it does. Yeah. So um, you know, we all have fear of death and we all have a fear of the unknown. And mm-hmm. we I almost feel like a life well lived is a life that prepares us to embrace death. Mm-hmm. without fear and so as a yoga teacher I feel like I am an educator of life helping people to reach their full potential through mm, self-mastery and self-empowerment and clarity of mind and courage to make choices that aren't always the easiest mm-hmm. and then so it felt like a natural um enhancement of my uh, dharma to be Mm -hmm. able to then and also I'm getting older and the people around me are getting older and and you become a significant as a yoga teacher you can become a significant person of stability in other people's lives and so therefore you might well be called upon you know to hold someone's hand or be supportive whilst they're losing someone or whilst they're dying themselves. And that's what I found happened for me. 
that as my community were going through different stages of, of illness and passing, I was called upon to, to play a part. And so becoming a death walker was completing um, that education so that I had more of a full range of information to offer those people as support. Mm. So that's, that's what beautiful. a death walker is, yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. Mm. Huh. I'd like yeah. to be a life walker first. Huh? For a yeah. <laughs> I think you kind of have to be a life walker to be a death walker. <laughs> well, you know, I I noticed on your, your email, and this was really, really beautiful, actually. Um, there's a tag, and it, and it says, um, life is full and sweet at the end. And I, I'm not sure if, if you knew this, but um, Harmony borrowed that from you. <laughs> and she puts it at the end of all of her emails. No, it's not at the end of my email. Well, I don't know where <laughs> I kept seeing in it. My bio, I your think bio. I put it. Life on my is website. full and sweet. And it's <laughs> like a, you. It's like you saw Dina's, and it's like, oh, I'm doing. I that. model everything mm-hmm. I do after Dina. <laughs> That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> You're so funny. Um, where did it come from? Life is full. Yeah. It's not actually. I don't think it's. I think like comedy. I think it's, it's in your bio. End. It's on my bio. Um, mm-hmm. Why is it on my bio? Because that's my life experience. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, my my life has been really full and my life has been really sweet and incredibly privileged. Um, I feel like, you know, my dreams have, have come true and made manifest. I've, mm-hmm. I've had all and more than any one person could hope for in a lifetime. And so life is full and sweet. Mm. and it's wonderful harmony that you feel the same way i do i read it and i was like oh that sums up everything just perfectly Mm. aren't we lucky aren't we fortunate very lucky very fortunate i I just want to say everybody write that (laughs) yes i hope so put that on the end of their bio (laughs) yes i think it should be good <laughs> There's one other inspiring poem that you sung when we were in uh, Goa back in 2008, and yes. it's from an Australian poet, and Michael Lunig. That... Yes, yes. No. Oh, and that just that just. Why don't you read it, Harmony? No, maybe you can probably sing it, Dina. L- or say I'm it. not going to sing it, but I'll tell you okay. the words. Yes, the words tell are, us the words. Let it go. Let it out. Let it all unravel. Set it free as it might be a path on which to travel. Mm. And it's just so akin with our yoga path, really, that it's all that we hold on to and it's all that we are or think we are, Mm. that if we could just let it go, if we could just relax a little, if we could just simplify that that process, that process is a life's work. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, and it's incredibly valid to become the best version of yourself that you can be. You know, sometimes people say, or, you know, isn't all of that yoga a little self-indulgent? Mm-hmm. And I think no one is going to help you to really heal yourself. That work, that work has to come from you. And that 
everything we say and everything that we do and everything that we think, it translates and it affects someone else. So if I think something, I'll say something. And if I say something, you'll hear it. And if you hear it, it will affect you and it will Mm -hmm. change that moment. And then those moments, they make up your day and those days make up your week and those weeks make up your year and those years make up your life. So you are simply a manifestation of what you think. So if you don't do the work to sort out your chitamvritti and your samskaras and your vasanas, then, you know, you're just going to live trapped with that. So I believe we individually have a responsibility to deal with our own shit, so to speak. And <laughs> language. Thank you. I, I threw that one in just for you, Russell. We're delighted. <laughs> threw that. I, do you want me to say it again? No. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, a if you precious jewel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got to clean up your own mess before you can really be um, of service to other people. That's my belief. Mm-hmm. And and the, the path of yoga is something that enables that. And I think uh, Looney captured that. We call him, you know, the every man's prophet because the words are really simple and yet profound and, and everyone can access them and be moved by them to, um, to take that first step along that yeah. path. And it's, it's scary sometimes for people to, to unravel, to, to yes. really just let it all go. And I, it's I feel messy. like, yeah, yeah, it's not, it's not pretty, it's not perfect. And it's, yeah. But it's, if I had it a is t-shirt, the path, if I had a t- right? Exactly. If I had a T-shirt slogan, it would be yoga is not pretty. Because, <laughs> oh, I love it. Because whenever oh. you see it, you see it. They use it in advertising all the time. Mm. You get the beautiful slender model and she's fully dressed in white. She's model, you can tell, because her hips are really tight in her body canasana or padmasana <laughs> yes. that they've chosen, exactly. whatever. And she's, you know, it's all very serene. And I'm thinking, really? That's not been my experience of yoga. I think yeah. You know, yoga's like lifting the lid on the box and just letting it all out. And when you let it all out, there's a big mess. But with that big mess, you get a chance to turn it over and sort it out and work out what you want to put back in the box, what belongs to you, what's useful for you, and what's no longer relevant or was never really yours anyway. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. anger that you 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 stored up because your father was angry or the the political views that your school imposed on you or um you know the the overly polite behavior that your mother wouldn't let you swear or you know all of those all of those Not my things experience. exactly <laughs> that you, you don't need anymore or all those belief yeah. systems and fears that weren't even yours in the first place or they're outdated or you've mm-hmm. you've outgrown them and so you've got to make that mess before you can then refine and then rebuild yourself as, you know, as who you truly are or long to be. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
thank we should really let you be. this was a this was a real dharma talk i had i had shivers i had the tears i had the Aww. i had the whole experience dina so thank you Aww. so much for your time yeah. and your words and your blessings and we're just gonna hold it close to our hearts for oh, forever and ever oh, how many until thank we you. die mm. <laughs> With a full life full of joy. Yes. After a full yes. life full of joy. Full Thank and you. sweet life. Well, hopefully <laughs> sooner <you>. than later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so much for making me feel so um, comfortable and welcome. I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you. Mm, Thank it's you. It's our blessing and pleasure to share your wisdom and your words with whoever is called to listen. Mm. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in eternity's shadow Watching the breaking